This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 32. This is Writing Excuses, first page fundamentals, The Killing Floor by Lee Child. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. Okay, so this week we're doing the last of our three deep dives. Uh, We're going to do a close reading of the opening page of uh, one of my favorite thrillers that introduces uh, the character of Jack Reacher, who will be the protagonist of this series for however many books there are, 10, 11 books. Uh, I think he's an incredibly iconic character in the, the field of thrillers. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're going to have a quick reading of the first couple paragraphs of most of the first page here. I was arrested at Eno's Diner at 12 o'clock. I was eating eggs and drinking coffee. A late breakfast, not lunch. I was wet and tired after a long walk in heavy rain, all the way from the highway to the edge of town. The diner was small but bright and clean, brand new, built to resemble a converted railroad card. Narrow, with a long lunch counter on one side and a kitchen bumped out back. Booths lining the opposite wall. A doorway where the center booth would be. I was in a booth at a window, reading somebody's abandoned newspaper about the campaign for a president I didn't vote for last time and wasn't going to vote for this time. Outside, the rain had stopped, but the glass was still pebbled with bright drops. I saw the police cruisers pull into the gravel lot. They were moving fast and crunched to a stop. Light bars flashing and popping. Red and blue light in the raindrops on my window. Doors burst open. Policemen jumped out. Two from each car, weapons ready. Two revolvers, two shotguns. This was heavy stuff. One revolver and one shotgun ran to the back. One of each rushed the door. So the two examples we've done so far have been very high-minded, very beautiful language, very high prose. You know, I mean, we're talking two master stylists of the American canon here. Um, You might notice that this one's a little bit different. Um, In fact, a lot of times when I'm on Twitter, I will see somebody start to make fun of Lee Child's writing. Um, and they'll and you know flag it as quote unquote bad writing, and I could not disagree with them more. I think this is some of the most effective writing for the genre that we are talking about, for the character that we're talking about, and I think there's a rhythm and a beauty and a poetry to it all on its own. It is not trying to paint an incredibly moving, chilling Gothic picture. It is not painting the the rich interiority of uh, a depressed person. It is instead engaging with how a particular person sees the world and how that makes him good at two things, investigating and extreme violence. Calling back to um, uh, the the discussion of uh, asking questions and then answering them, Um, I was arrested in Eno's diner. Well, I have a lot of questions already. At 12 o'clock, you know, the time at which you were arrested was not one of the questions I had, (laughs) but thank you for the additional information. I was eating eggs and drinking coffee. Okay, that's also not one of the answers I needed, but thank you for completing the picture. And then 
A late breakfast, not lunch. Oh, wait. Eggs, coffee, 12 o'clock. Maybe I should have been asking that question, but no, again, that's not the question I had, but thank you for completing the picture. I love the way it works because with each reveal, quote unquote, we're being given information that isn't what we asked for, but which completes a picture. And the tone of it says, hey, that first question you had about me getting arrested, that doesn't actually matter. We'll get to what matters later. Let me tell you about my eggs. Well, and the thing that's implicit in that is his superiority as an investigator, right? And not in the Sherlock Holmes, I'm like, I'm going to prove him so smarter than you. But there is an element to this. It's like, hey, dummy, you didn't ask important questions, which is what was happening? Why was I here? All those things that led up to this moment. And you start to get a sense of how does Reacher's brain work? How does he see the world? How does he like put all of these things together. And, you know, I, I love the inferences they can pull from this. And, you know, a thing that we will l- later learn about Reacher is that he is fundamentally homeless. He doesn't have a home. He's itinerant. Um, and so he doesn't have a car either. So that whole wet and tired after a long walk in the heavy rain from the highway to the edge of town. Why was he doing that? Why was he walking through the rain to get to this diner to have this late breakfast? And also just so many bad things have happened to him already by the end of this paragraph. Like, that's not a fun way to be. He's getting arrested. And yet we don't get rage. We don't get anger. We don't get depression. We just get, eh, it's a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I notice about this is uh, the the way, again, I, I always tend to look at punctuation because of the audiobook narrator background. Uh, there are so many incomplete sentences in this. When he's describing things, it's, you know, it, it's these quick pops of uh, of things, brand new, built to resemble a converted railroad car. Like that's, that's not, that's, that, that is, that's the entirety of it. There's, there's no verb there. Well, built, I guess, but, um, but it, it's just, uh, the, these incomplete sentences that that just give you these these pops of 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 his his notice it's it's like for me what it it mimics is kind of the way his eyes are darting around and looking at things it's like i notice this i notice that i notice this i don't linger on anything because i can't afford to linger on things i have to keep moving forward my guy doesn't have time for verbs. What are you talking about? Yeah, Who needs yeah. subjects to sentences? Objects? Forget about it. Yeah, you know? th- th- these are ridiculous things. Grammar? I don't have time for grammar. <laughs> I'm wet and tired. I gave you a, a a subject verb right there. I was wet and tired. What do you, What more do you want from me? Yeah, I had uh, this been written by Melville or McLean, um, there would be semicolons, <laughs> right? Exactly. There would be there would be a truck fun of semicolons. <laughs> also, I hate, this in I hate order to, to capture that voice. But you said McLean when you met Jackson, and I think you went Shirley McLean instead of Shirley Jackson. <laughs> Very different people. <laughs> You're right. I, no, I, I would Jackson. read either a horror novel or a thriller novel written by Shirley McLean. That Absolutely. Um, so I, I find it really delightful that uh, that people kind of mock this language uh in large part because that is i think fundamentally a bit of genre bias 
that this can't be good writing because it is a you know airport bestseller thriller. But you know who this language reminds me most strongly of is Cormac McCarthy, who mm-hmm. is considered to be you know one of our best living writers. And it's because this is not considered literary fiction that the exact same writing style that leaves out verbs and has short, punchy, very descriptive painterly sentences suddenly doesn't count anymore because of the, the genre that it's in. But if, if you look at this, the, um, the first sentence of that third paragraph is enormous. It is two to three times longer than any other sentence in here. And that always jumps out at me. Like, why does this merit so much extra time and attention? And the sentence is, I was in a booth at a window reading somebody's abandoned newspaper about the campaign for a president I didn't vote for last time and wasn't going to vote for this time. There's so much in there. Uh, there's so It's such a, not just long, but a complicated sentence, which forces your brain to kind of look at that and say, well, why does this deserve more than the others? And not having read the book, I'm three for three now on uh, not having read (laughs) Dong Wan's big examples. I don't know why that one gets more attention than the others. But it's... Go ahead. I think it's a little bit of the person slipping through the detective, right? Mm -hmm. You just get this digression where he can't contain his irritation with the world. You can't, he can't contain the reasons why he's chosen to exit society and live this itinerant life, right? He's, he's an outsider and it's outsider by choice because he, he can't even be bothered to care about who's president because to him, it doesn't matter and it won't matter because whoever it is, it sucks. Right. Um, well, and structurally, he, what he's doing, like every time he's got a longer sentence, it is actually a sentence about him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at 12 o'clock, I was eating eggs and drinking coffee is is longer. I was wet and tired after a long walk in heavy rain. Uh, you know, I was in a booth at a window reading somebody's abandoned newspaper. And it's it's when we get even a hint of interiority that that we linger on things. But the other thing I think is that the, the part of the reason that he he stretches that out is because the character is a little bit bored. And this is it's not enough. It, it's it's not so much that we get bored, too. It's just enough for us to say, oh, he was there for a little while reading this. And and then stuff started going down. Um which he's still not interested in. He's still not interested mm-hmm. in. Exactly. Exactly. I, I do. Uh, bef- Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, I do need to pause this for the book of the week. Um, and then we'll we'll come back and uh, and talk about some more things. And the book of the week this time is one that I want to talk about um, that Dan wrote. Uh, so, yay. yay, Ghost Station uh, by Dan Wells um, is also a, it's a Cold War spy thriller. Um, I listened to the audiobook, which is fantastic. It's beautifully narrated. Um, it is not science fiction or fantasy. So those of you who know Dan that way, this is straight up historical fiction. Um, it's right, uh, right, like a week or so after the Berlin lift. Yeah, it's right after the Berlin Wall goes up. And um, it is twisty. It is tightly paced. Uh, You're deeply in the main character's head, uh, who's a cryptographer. And and what he notices and doesn't notice is so important to, to the entirety of the book. This is, it's a, it's a, Great book. One of the things we're going to be talking about when we come af- come back from uh, from me raving about how much I love this book, um, and I, I loved it a lot, uh, is we're going to be talking about foreshadowing and uh, listening to this book and listening to it twice. It is in and of itself a masterclass in how to handle foreshadowing. Well, thank you. One other thing I want to point out, which is a very small note here, but you know we've been talking a lot about how saying your book should be for somebody, not for everybody. But he does something that's so canny in this newspaper line where he talks about campaign for president that I didn't vote for last time and wasn't going to vote for a lot this time. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. You feel that, right? <laughs> right? You could be left. You could be right. You could be a libertarian. You could be a communist. Anybody's going to read that line and be like, yeah, that president, I know which one you're talking about. And they're all, everyone has a different person in mind. Mm-hmm. And it's so smart that he doesn't alienate anybody, but still talks about politics because that's how we all feel about politics, right? So yeah. it's just this tiny little moment where sometimes withholding specificity can open the door to identification, even though most of the time, the more specific you are, the more you're going to find that that connection. Yeah, well, and the reason he can get away with it here is because he does not care about it. So yeah. he's being nonspecific about a thing he doesn't care about. But, exactly. But I want to I want to talk about the the foreshadowing which is that he he opens with I was arrested at and and then he essentially what he does is everything that follows that is a flashback um until until the arrest happens. And so he's he's saying, you know, bear with me. Bear with me. I'm going to get to the good stuff. Um so that's that's uh you know that you, we can call that foreshadowing, although it's, or we can call it a, a, a you know, a, a very brief cold open and then and then flashback. But he also does some other interesting foreshadowing in here um, that I'm going to have Dong Wan talk about. Yeah, so I think the other foreshadowing that's going on here is, you know, the thing that makes all of this remarkable is his complete disinterest and his complete lack of fear about getting arrested. And that tells us so much about who he is as a person. Uh, you know, one thing is that he's white, he's a man, he, you know, has all these elements that don't make him afraid, but also he's police. He was formerly a military police, which is the thing that we'll learn later. So he has a connection to these people. He He's not afraid of them. He knows how they operate. 
Um, and then, you know, the thing that comes immediately after where we stop the reading is that this operation was for me. He knows they're coming for him, not the cooks, not the waitress. He's the target here because he knows he's a dangerous person or capable of great danger. And what this is all setting up is that the police are interested in him, but they're not interested in him because he committed a crime. They're interested in him for some other reason. And that's adding this layer of foreshadowing, adding these layers of questions as to what is going on, what's going to happen. Now, what's going to happen is he's going to be forced into working for the police to help them find the killer, right? Uh, and and there's such an expectation that because it's the structure of so many of these thrillers. But again, his his uh, blasé about men with shotguns and handguns charging at him is indicative of both his control of the situation and and that foreshadowing, that foreshadowing that he knows that he can be useful to them and that that's why they want him at the end of the day, not because he is a criminal. Yeah. Now, one of the kind of key principles of a character introduction is that we need to know not only who this person is, but why do we like them? And this extreme competence and lack of fear that you're talking about is a big part of why we start to like this guy. But I'm reading ahead a little bit. And in the next paragraph, he has this huge thing where he talks about, you know, reason after reason that he knows they're coming for him and for nobody else. And so what does he do? He finishes his eggs and then he puts a $5 bill under his plate because he knows he's about to get arrested. He knows he's not going to have time to pay, but he wants to make sure that this diner doesn't get shafted out of the money he owes them. And that says an incredible amount about the character. One last thing I want to bring up is, you know, this language isn't beautiful. It's short sentences, it's blunt sentences, it's very simple. But actually, the imagery is quite beautiful. He pauses in the middle of this scene to say, outside, the rain had stopped, but the glass was still pebbled with bright drops. And then he like kind of jumps forward to light bars flashing and popping, red and blue light on the raindrops on my window. He, he's pausing for these rich visual images. I know exactly what this diner looks like. I can see it in my mind. I can feel the vinyl of those booths. I can smell it. You know what I mean? He's so evocative with his imagery. We get caught up in the staccato pacing of it, his observations, that sort of like military mind looking for threats and dangers. But the writer behind that is, is showing us a rich and textured world. So just because you're being blunt doesn't mean you can't have beauty in what you're doing, that you can't have aesthetics really coming forward in a powerful way. One of the things that makes this work so well for me is it's operating on like all these different layers at once. It's just firing on every cylinder, character, plot, setting, writing, you know, all those things are really coming into play here in a way that I find incredibly exciting and absolutely makes one, me want to turn the next page and find out, okay, what happens when the cops get to the door? Okay, what happens when he gets to the station? Okay, what happens at the next step of the investigation? Everything is just pulling me forward like a freight train. And for me, I find it irresistible. Yeah. I, I would also argue, having since we just did the, um, the master classes with Amal about poetry, that, uh, that this is actually beautiful language and that if you took this and did a paragraph break where most of these periods are um, that and, and presented a chunk of this as free verse poetry to someone that they would believe you and 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 would talk about the, you know, the, the capture of individual elements. Yeah, well, and this has a lot of that density of kind of meaning that we talked about with the Mal. 
sentence like here, I saw the police cruisers pull into the gravel lot. That's a visual detail, but that's also an audible detail because Mm -hmm. we can hear instantly what tires on gravel sounds like. We know that and it's very familiar. There's a lot of different sensory information all packed into very small spaces. Yeah, I noticed uh, it scanning back over it that um, he doesn't use he doesn't use comparison to describe things. There are places where he uses words that might more commonly be used to describe other things. Uh, you know, they were moving fast and crunched to a stop. You know, gives us gives us a sound effect as they were they are stopping. Um, but it's very straightforward description. He he doesn't compare the red and blue lights on the raindrops to something else to help us see red and blue, you know, flashing through the raindrops. He just calls it like it is. And it's, uh, it's, it's very direct. And, and that is consistent with the character, which brings us to our homework. And Dongwan, I think you have that this week. So I think our homework is to sort of take what's been done here and take the lesson of that and write an introduction to your story that focuses on entirely the character's view of the world. Uh, And maybe, again, take that scene that you've worked on for the past couple uh, homeworks and rewrite it again, not necessarily the character reflecting on their interiority, but how does the character interact with the world? How do they see the world, uh, both in mechanical and philosophical ways? How is what is happening in the world around them filtered through their point of view. When we say point of view, this is what we're talking about. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dongwon Song, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. The episode was brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.